This is Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host, your storyteller. Here we focus on people who change the world, or at least change their part of the world. We're now on our third segment of a three-part series on Joan of Arc, a woman who I like to think of as a true, real-life Wonder Woman, a true superhero. Episode 1 covered Mark Twain's fascination with Joan and shared his worshipful introduction of her in his favorite and last book, Joan of Arc. In the second part, we spoke with Dan Snow, the well-known British historian who told us of her battlefield brilliance and strategic prowess. Today, I'll tell you about how she was captured and the trials that followed. After Joan of Arc had freed much of occupied France and placed the crown on Charles VII's head in Reims, he seemed to lose his stomach for fighting. The English, along with the Burgundies, still held Paris and much of northern France. Joan wanted to keep fighting and push the English thoroughly off of French soil, just as her voices had commanded. But the king said it was now time to negotiate. Let statescraft take over, he said. He could make a deal with the Burgundies and the Brits. Maybe he'd surrender some of his kingdom, but they would have peace. He allowed Joan to take small armies out for simple skirmishes, but he would not fund any kind of massive D-Day operation. He was placating her while negotiating quietly for terms of peace behind the scenes. Joan heard the city of Compiègne was under siege by English forces and in danger of falling, so she went to their aid without any army. She just went into the city under cover of rain and darkness and took command of the forces there that were in defensive positions behind the wall. Joan had one great military weakness. She hated defense. She preferred offense. She loved only one strategy, attack, one speed, full speed. After all, one of her famous sayings is that courage is not falling back. Well, this had served her well so far, often catching the enemy off guard and shocked by her audacity, her fearlessness. So in Compiègne, instead of fortifying the defense, she led the cavalry out of the city gates and attacked the English on the field. She did well for a while, but had to try to retreat back behind the walls when English reinforcements arrived unexpectedly. As she remained to the last to let the soldiers pass on the bridge ahead of her, she was captured by Burgundy forces. Some believe that this was a setup by Charles VII to send her into a lost situation and arrange to have her captured. Hard to know. Now the Burgundies had the prize of all prizes. They would sell her to the English. As she was held in a castle near Compiègne, she escaped but was soon recaptured. They moved her to another, better fortified castle and imprisoned her high up in a corner tower or the keep. Though sixty feet up, she jumped into the moat, but she didn't escape because she was injured. Well, at the trial, they would ask her why she had been so dishonest, so untrustworthy as to try to escape twice. She said, isn't it the duty of prisoners of war to try to escape? So from then on, she was kept in a room with male guards inside the room, and she was chained to a heavy wooden block. Now, here you would think that Charles VII, who owed his kingdom to her, would have paid any ransom to get her back. Strangely, he did nothing. 
He made no moves to save her. He offered no gold or silver, no part of the kingdom, nothing. Nothing but silence came from him. Some feel that he was counseled to believe this was a good thing. She was the only person in France that rivaled him for popularity. In fact, at Reims, had she been a vastly different person, she might have put the crown on her own head. So Charles may have seen her capture as a means of removing her possible rivalry from the chessboard. The English had a political problem, too. The crown didn't want to execute Joan because that would make a martyr of her. They wanted first to discredit her, to ruin her reputation forever. They wanted to reduce her from saint to sorceress, from holy warrior to heretic. For this, they needed the church. Fortunately for them, the theology faculty at the University of Paris were chomping at the bit to put her on trial and humiliate this fraud, this simple, uneducated, blasphemous peasant girl. So was the well-known Bishop Calchon of that region. He was ready to preside over her trial as a heretic and make sure she was properly burned at the stake. So the English crown paid the ransom to the Burgundies who held her, and they turned her over to the church. She was tried in Rouen, France, an English stronghold. The trial took five months, but I'll provide the highlight reels and keep it down to five minutes. To me, this is Joan of Arc's most astounding achievement, holding her own on her own, often brilliantly. On the battlefield, you see, she had thousands of knights and soldiers with her. They had her back always. But here, in her trial, Joan was alone. She had no advocate, no lawyer, no one to speak for her, no one to guide her. She was an illiterate girl of 18 asked to defend herself against the prosecution waged by Bishop Calchon, the Inquisitor of France from the University of France, and 42 learned clerics. Talk about stacking the deck against the poor girl. And the King of England, who paid for the whole charade, instructed that should they be unable to convict her of heresy, she should be handed back to the English as a prisoner of the crown. So the fix was in, no matter what. The bishop first sent an emissary to Joan's hometown to find out details of her sorcery as a young girl or anything that might be used to prove that. The man returned with nothing but glowing reports. He said he would have been delighted to learn about his own sister. As a young girl, he learned that Joan was already uniquely devout. She attended Mass and Confession with what one might call excessive devotion. The bishop called the man a traitor and refused to pay his bill. Next, the bishop had her examined to see if Joan was really a virgin. Women, accustomed to such inspections, said that her virginity was intact. So the bishop was blocked there, too. But he didn't admit any of that positive evidence into her trial. He just ignored it. The trial began as a public event that many could attend, but Joan did not fall apart or have weak answers as they expected or hoped. On the contrary, it was the bishop who looked weak and ineffectual. For instance, he asked if she believed she was in a state of grace with God. She said, If I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. Her answer, so perfect, so theologically perfect, caused a murmur in this crowd of holy men. They were stunned by her wisdom and her eloquence. She also said, You say that you are my judge. I do not know if you are, but take good heed not to judge me ill because you would put yourself in great peril. 
and I warn you so that if God punish you for it, I shall have done my duty in telling you. Well, you see, answers like these soon force the bishop to move the trial from public to private, to behind a closed-door venue. Well, having little success in finding any compelling evidence by which he could brand her a heretic or a sorceress, he focused ad nauseum on the fact that she wore men's clothes. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says that women should not wear men's clothes. It is an abomination before the Lord. Well, as a practical matter, it would have been perhaps impossible for her to wear a dress while riding a war horse and wearing armor in battle. She said, It is both more seemly and proper to dress like this when surrounded by men than wearing women's clothes. She was asked if God commanded her to wear men's clothes, and she said, The clothes are a trifle, the very least of things. I did not put on men's clothes by the counsel of any man. I did not do anything except by commandment of God and the angels. Then they ask her, In the particular case of wearing men's clothes, did you think you did right? She said, Of what I have done in the world, I have done nothing but by God's commandment. It is astonishing that we have a 700-year-old transcript of this trial, but we do. I have read most of the trial, and the focus on the men's clothes is maddening. You wonder how many times they'll come back to this, but soon you get to the point. They were attempting to wear her down, to make her answer differently, to see if she'd slip up and contradict herself. I wondered at times why she didn't ask them why they wore robes that were not all that different from dresses. She also explained that in her captivity she preferred men's clothes because it was easier to protect herself from rape by her jailers when wearing men's clothes as opposed to dresses that had, that had obvious defensive flaws. Well, since they had trouble getting the kind of absolutely damning evidence they wanted on her answers about dressing like a man, they switched to focusing on her voices with the idea of making the voices ones from Satan rather than from God or angels. The simple truth is that Joan claimed that God told her to expel the English from France. That's what God wanted. If they were to find her innocent of heresy, then it would seem that they were endorsing God's wish against their position as friends of English invaders. So she must have been tricked by the devil because God had to be on the side of the English king. Yet they could not explain how she had been so successful in routing the English if God was on their side. Well, the conclusion of the jury, no surprise at all, was as follows. We say and determine that you have falsely imagined revelations and divine apparitions, that you are a pernicious, temptress, presumptuous, credulous, rash, superstitious, a false prophetess, a blasphemer against God and his saints, scornful of God and his sacraments, a transgressor of divine law, sacred doctrine, and ecclesiastical decrees that you are seditious, cruel, apostate, schismatic, straying in many ways from our faith, and that in these ways you have rashly sinned against God and his church. She was taken out and burned at the stake. Legend has it that it took three lightings to get the wood to burn. She had a priest nearby hold up a cross so she could look at it as she died. She cried out the name of Jesus six times, before she spoke no more. What is fairly well documented is that they had to burn her body three times to get it all consumed. 
the executioner himself said that he couldn't get her heart and insides to burn her intestines. To him, this was a miracle, and he was beside himself with grief over having burned alive a saintly woman. He would have to do some incredible service, he said, to God, to be forgiven for this sin. Some of the ashes were preserved and analyzed in modern times. The bone fragments thought to be hers were actually those of a cat. It was common in the burning of witches to throw black cats on the fire to keep the witches' curses from escaping into the world. But wouldn't this practice also be witchcraft? Twenty-five years after her execution at the stake, Charles VII, the man whom she never betrayed or said one negative thing about, found himself suddenly in possession of almost all of France. By simple attrition, political winds, and good luck, he had acquired all of his kingdom again. Joan had prophesied this, so now he had a problem. His kingdom and the crown on his head had been made possible by a heretic, by a sorceress burned at the stake. So what did that make him? Even in death, her predictions had remained incredibly accurate, though she rarely put a time frame on them. So this was quite a PR problem for the king. He needed Joan to be restored to the status of the innocent virgin maid that she was, the deliverer of France, the daughter of God. She needed to be formally rehabilitated in the eyes of the church. So he had the Pope, at the request of Joan's family, assemble a group of theologians and wise clerics to review the documents of Rouen and decide on formal rehabilitation. So they did this, and this is what they concluded. We, in session of our court, and having God only before our eyes, say, pronounce, decree, and declare that the said trial and sentence of condemnation, being tainted with fraud, with calumny, with iniquity and contradiction, and manifest errors of fact and of law, to have been and to be null, invalid, worthless, without effect, and annihilated. We proclaim that Joan of Arc did not contract any taint of infamy, and that she shall be and is washed clean. Thank God her mother lived to see her daughter exonerated. As we began with Twain, let us conclude with his take. He said, with Joan of Arc, love of country was more than a sentiment, it was a passion. She was the genius of patriotism. She was patriotism embodied, concreted, made flesh. She was a slender girl in her first young bloom, with the martyr's crown upon her head, and in her hand the sword that severed her country's bonds. This image should stand as a premier image of patriotism through the ages. Joan never asked to be remembered, but she has been remembered with an indistinguishable love and reverence. She never asked for a statue, but France has lavished them upon her. She never asked for a church in her hometown, but France built one. She never asked for sainthood, but that, too, is coming. Twain died in 1910, so he didn't live to see that Joan of Arc was formally canonized as a saint of the Roman Catholic Church on the 16th of May, 1920. Also in 1920, the French Parliament established the second Sunday in May as Joan of Arc Day. And even better than that is the Joan of Arc Festival, celebrated every year in the city of Orléans, as they say, and has been celebrated for, get this, six centuries now, celebrating Joan's liberation of that city. Now you have to put that on your bucket list.
That wraps up our three-part series on Joan of Arc. Next week, a story by Somerset Mom. You can support this podcast at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Become a patron of Beyond Texas, and I'll send you the editor's cut, information not included in the podcast that is hopefully further enlightening, relevant memes, photos, etc., to thank you for your support. Until next week, tell some stories of your own. No greater force in the world than great stories well told. (laughs) 